Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey, and joining me as always is nobody, because Nadia is on vacation, and I don't have another guest. However, we do have Mike and Katie coming on a little bit later to be talking about what we want from next-gen RPGs, and it's a really good conversation. We just wrapped it up. We talk a lot about what we are expecting from the genre, what we wouldn't mind seeing from things like AI, how it can get past some of the baseline conventions like the need for combat. If you enjoy the show, can I recommend that you leave us a review over on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice? It definitely helps with the visibility of the podcast. Also, follow me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And follow our other podcast hosted by Jeff Green. It's called Branching Narratives. And I had a really cool conversation with Jeff Green where we talked about his career and working his way through the games industry. And he has a lot of great old stories about working in print. We have a newsletter that comes out every single Wednesday. I handled it this week. And I touched on a topic that has been talked about on this podcast in the past. That is, can Fable and Avowed carry the Xbox Series X? I think that with RPGs being more popular than ever, I mean, all you have to do is look at the popularity of games like Skyrim. The fact that Aiden Chronicles was just fully funded for $2.5 million shows that there is a lot of heat and a lot of passion around really good RPGs. People love the interactivity. They love the amount of game that's involved. They love getting lost in these giant fantasy worlds. And Fable and Avowed have an opportunity to really push that envelope and become kind of the flagship games that Xbox needs. If you want to get our newsletter that comes every single Wednesday, just go over to the website and subscribe and it will show up in your mailbox with a cool little sword emoji to kind of differentiate it. We Every newsletter contains some thoughts from Nadia and myself, as well as all of the headlines from the latest newsletter. Before we continue on to the main topic, let's continue on to some of the news. The biggest piece of news right now, outside of Aiden Chronicle being fully funded and having a fishing minigame, I'm very excited about that, is that Moon, the 1997 PlayStation role-playing game, is coming to Nintendo Switch on August 27th, fully localized. It's the game's first official release in English. It was designed by Yoshiro Kimura, and it has been called an anti-RPG. According to Polygon, Moon addresses the bizarre behaviors of many RPG heroes who rudely enter people's homes in search of items and clues, and who slay thousands of creatures for items and experience, and adds a bit of a playful twist. Players do not assume the role of the traditional hero, but that of a boy who is sucked into his television and into an in-game RPG called Moon World. The boy follows the hero's adventures, freeing the soul of slain enemies and collecting a resource called love. Tim Rogers helped with the localization. Uh, Tim Rogers is a friend of this podcast. We're going to have him on later in August so that he can talk about Moon. The other piece of RPG news? No. World of Warcraft is not coming to console. You know, I was thinking about this. I would not mind seeing World of Warcraft on something like, <laughs> you guessed it, Nintendo Switch. Why wouldn't I mind playing WoW on Nintendo Switch? I guess that 
I sort of see, wow, despite all of the time spent raiding and everything, it's almost a casual RPG. It is a game that could translate readily to a handheld scenario on Nintendo Switch. It's pretty old at this point. There's a huge amount of content to chew through. And frankly, the graphics are dated enough that I sort of feel weird playing it on a PC, but maybe playing it on Nintendo Switch wouldn't be as jarring. It seemingly is not coming to console and it's staying firmly on PC. Blizzard disavowed that it is under development. So too bad, I guess we are seeing a little bit of a missed opportunity. Okay, that is our RPG news. Thanks for listening. We're gonna continue onward to the main topic. Don't go away. All right, I'm here with Katie McCarthy, Senior Editor. Hello, I'm glad to be back, as always. And Mike Williams, Reviews Editor. Hello, hello, folks. How's everybody doing today? And yeah, we're going to be talking about a topic that we kind of meant to get to in the last episode, but got completely derailed by all of the RPG news and Aiden Chronicle getting announced and everything. And that is, how can RPGs be better in the next generation? And it's been a question that's kind of been weighing on my mind. And I'm the question, I, I know that we have new frontiers, but what are those new frontiers? Where can we go from here? Because it felt like this generation was kind of a lot about refinement, you know? No, I, I definitely agree. Like the one RPG, or I mean, obviously the few RPGs that stand out, it's like Witcher 3, obviously, which was very much like a refinement on like open world RPGs and expanded that. And then there's like Disco Elysium, which was... Probably the only RPG that I feel like broke new ground this year, perhaps like may or that not this year, but like this generation. But also, is a PC exclusive game so far, so maybe it's not indicative of like where console RPGs are headed. Yeah, I, I, I see. Witcher Three is a good one because I enjoy The Witcher Three, but I don't think The Witcher Three, technically from a game standpoint, does anything particularly amazing or new. I think where they really sold it was on the storytelling aspects mm -hmm. uh their their storytelling was to a higher level than most other studios um for me other than disco elysium which yes as you point out is probably one of the most interesting mechanical changes this generation what i did enjoy were studios like in exile and larian mm -hmm. revisiting the old CRPG style of game that sort of got lost because Bioware, like back in the day, was the CRPG like lead, and then they sort of trended towards more cinematic games that sort of, in some places, lost their RPGness because a as your presentation improves, sometimes the uh, number of directions you can go the amount of dialogue you can add and all that stuff gets lessened mm -hmm. so i I, th I think bioware probably lost something and when bioware lost that i think a lot of other rpg developers sort of moved away from that as well so to see that come back with some b-level studios that are getting to a level now uh, has been, I, I think, a boon. Like that's still refinement, but I think it's a, a good thing to sort of go back and bring that idea forward. 
Yeah, and I, I feel like there's kind of almost three types of pop, like, in terms of, like, popular mainstream RPGs, there's, like, the, like, CRPG type, which we've been seeing with, like, PC-focused studios. We've seen, like, a lot of action RPGs this generation, obviously. I feel like every AAA game is, like, an RPG in some respects, like, Assassin's Creed's an RPG series now. And then we have, like, typical turn-based JRPGs, but also, like, even JRPGs are going action now, or, like, have been going action for, like, this generation, so it, it's... <laughs> uh, I mean, I would... I can't think of an action JRPG that I... Like, I guess Nier Automata, but I don't like Nier Automata for the you combat. You gave Kingdom Hearts you know? 3 a good review, Katie. Never I know forget. I did. I did. I still like that game, but I, I definitely scored it too high, and I also reviewed it in like 48 hours, so <laughs> it was also like I was not sleeping, uh, so maybe that skewed it, definitely. But um, And I feel like the- I mean, Kingdom Hearts 3 had the best combat of the series, I think. Like, it like added a lot of variety to it like there's like projectile type keyblades where you basically had like dual pistols and that was like kind of a fun new thing but i mean i want it's still like a pretty easy combat system like all things considered i think ff7 remake really did a great job of squaring it you know being able to have that really crunchy tactical element that was a lot of fun and appealed to turn-based people like me but also having that exciting kind of really kinetic action feel to it. And I really hope that certain RPGs, if they have to go action, go in that direction. Uh, of like the JRPGs of this generation, like Final Fantasy VII Remake, I feel like probably has the best combat that I can think of immediately. I mean, there's uh, like, I also, I think of Persona 5 as having great combat where it it's like turn-based, but it's very active. And it's not like a lot of like, oh, I'm, like, waiting a long time to make a decision. But it's not, like, an active time battle system. It's still turn-based, ultimately. And then Final Fantasy VII Remake, I feel like, kind of does the opposite thing, where it's, like, it's very it's an action combat system, but it also slows things down so you can, like, make those tactical decisions. Um, so it's kind of like both those games, in a way, are kind of blending the two, like, I guess, design philosophies, in a way. Like, they're both, like, there's room for both action and, like, tactical more turn-based type stuff um and those i feel like stand out as like rpgs that really like messed with like the typical battle systems that we know um in a fresh way yeah i i my only problem with ff7 which i enjoyed that battle system a great deal uh were more tweaks one i i enjoyed the battles more where it leaned further on the weakness style system Mm -hmm. uh, like where you needed to really use that in order to get past the fight and two the the party ai was just like bad like very bad i i have no idea what they were doing like look I, if i'm not controlling like tifa or or barrett please let them actually do something like i, I need them to be building atb meter while i'm not using them yeah, uh, that was definitely an annoying thing. And I, I, I've switched a lot. Like, I was definitely, like, very active with that system where it's, like, every time there's an ATB meter up, I was like, okay, now I'm this. But I was like, whenever Tifa was in my party, I was, like, dominantly her because she was just very fun to play as. But, uh, yeah, the AI was definitely lacking in Final Fantasy VII Remake. And that's something I hope in Part 2 that they fix because I feel like that was a pretty common criticism. I feel like a lot of people kind of have that same sentiment of this AI, this party AI can be better 
uh, but also it's like trying to encourage you to swap between characters. So it was like successful in that respect, but also, yeah, it, it definitely was lacking. Yeah, and and then there's the 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 third rung is the Octopath Traveler, uh, bravely default to Aiden Chronicle. Aiden Chronicle, like the the much like the the CRPG at the beginning of this generation went through it's like let's go back and take that old thing and bring it forward i think we're hopefully going to start seeing more of that where japanese developers or even western developers i know um zaboid games is doing another uh rpg this time based on magical girl stuff um but like bringing back that old straightforward turn-based game uh, maybe upgrading the graphics a bit, but not going like entirely uh, to the Final Fantasy VII's uh, remakes of the world. I'm kind of excited for the new game by the folks from The Messenger, uh, where you have the two characters. It's almost sort of an isometric look, and it's incorporating both turn-based and action elements into its battle system. Uh, you'll forgive me if I... I think it's called Sea of Stars or something to that effect. Yes, uh, and it looks fantastic. Yes, Sab- Sabotage Studio uh, doing, I think it's Sea of Stars. I'd have to check to make sure the name, but it is like Sea of Something. Yeah, I am really intrigued by that game, and I hope that it speaks to a greater push by indie developers to be able to do more RPGs in the next generation, because there certainly have been indie RPGs, but I feel like in a lot of ways, it's such a big sprawling genre. The cost benefit ratio isn't exactly there for small teams that are having to generate a ton of content. But as the tools become more refined and it becomes easier to generate stuff and the appetite for these big meaty RPG experiences remains very strong, I wouldn't be surprised if you see more indie developers in the next generation leaning into especially 16-bit nostalgia for their RPGs. And frankly, 16-bit RPGs hold up really well, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be upset, you know, Katie? Yeah, I mean, on like I was not a fan of Octopath Traveler. Like I did Neither not was like I, actually. I hope so, Aiden Chronicles is way better. Yeah, and I, it has like a great look to it. Like I love the art style they're going with. Like definitely go, I mean, they've directly cited Octopath, right? So it's the overworld's I'm, good. The battle, not so good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like it looks like a mobile game. Yeah, it's it, and there's too much bloom filter. Like they way overdid it there, and there's like good like art direction there, but I mean the battle system just wasn't good to me. It was just oh, so, battles I, I took so it. long. Like by the so way, Bloodcod fans are coming for you because we're dissing Octopath Traveler. Can't yeah, do that. the battles. So I thought long. it was so good. That that was actually uh, essentially like a Final Fantasy VII is sort of like a lesser version of that, like not as uh, stringent. Uh, and I, I really liked it. Uh, yes, battles did take too long, so, so I long. would tweak like that. just like random battles would take forever, and it was that I think that's what got me. It's like I don't mind if like a boss battle takes a while. Like I kind of assume that going into a boss battle, but when like your random encounters take like 20 minutes a piece that is that's ridiculous i don't know maybe that's just me and i maybe i'm i value my time too much or something but so i want to circle back to disco elysium really quickly 
you guys were talking about how it was one of the only RPGs to truly push the format. And I'm curious, what is the one thing from Disco Elysium that we kind of want to carry over into the next generation for bigger budget games to adopt? I mean, I think it's just like the sheer amount of choice and like character shaping and like, I mean, they, there's so, it's just so, there's so much in that game. Like, you're Every constantly little, making little choices, right? It's yeah, it's like a purely dialogue-based system. Like there's no combat in Disco Elysium, so you're it's pretty much an own, you're only having conversations. But literally, like every little conversation, like choice you're making is influencing like your stats and everything, uh, and like how you build your character in the beginning kind of determines how like later conversations play out, how relationships play out. Like you can completely lock yourself out some content. Um, but it's very replayable in that sense also. Uh, so I, I feel like what I'd love to see more RPGs do, or like big budget AAA RPGs do, is just like really make those choices matter. Because I feel like The Witcher 3 has like choices obviously that matter, but it does feel very binary in a sense. Whereas Disco Elysium, like it never felt binary. It felt like I was literally just role-playing. Like I was just shaping this character. I was going through the story. I was learning about this world. Uh, and another thing I think that sticks out is Disco Elysium is like a very unique setting. It's not post-apocalyptic. It's not sci-fi. It's, I mean, I guess it's sort of post-apocalyptic, but not in like a traditional way. Um, it's it's just very distinct. It's a very distinct game. The writing is really, really good. Like still excellent. Like I still just like randomly think about moments in that game like all the time, which I can't say that about honestly any game of like this past like generation whatsoever. It's weird that we don't have more noir uh, RPGs. Yeah. We have so many fantasy and sci-fi RPGs, but noir, so many th elements of noir that you can adopt into RPGs, it feels like a weird oversight that we look at a game like Disco Elysium and go, well, not many games like that. I mean, it's more than just like a noir like detective game, though. It's like it has like mm -hmm. this really striking setting, this like really rich history. Like there's like a whole history to like Rachel, I think it's how you pronounce it. Uh, and there's like a whole like little not sci-fi, but there's like a like a mystery like mystic element to it too to the world, and there's just so much going on in that game, and it's all and it all works like it. That's the shocking thing is like the whole game works like it's kind of a miracle that it all clicks together. But I mean, maybe the writers coming from like an actual like authorial like book background helps maybe because they're used to actually like writing. Uh, and it, yeah, maybe that's why it stands out so much is that it's just like a much richer world than we're used to in any video game. I, I, uh, I would say part of the problem surrounding the Disco Elysium talk, uh, there are things I, I really enjoyed about Disco Elysium that sort of set it apart, uh, including things like the thought cabinet where sort of ideas about who you are as a character have to sort of... You, you have to add them and then mm -hmm. sort of reinforce them and let them coalesce over time. I really like that. Um, in terms of smaller choices and world building, like, I think Divinity does uh, a, a to that level of sort of bringing over the D&D &D straight up style RPG thing to games. It works in that same space. Mm -hmm. But I think Divinity tends to be a little bit more hardcore because of the combat 
side of the experience, whereas Disco Elysium is a little bit more. Uh, there is combat, but that it's it's very combat light. Like there's not necessarily a combat system per se. You're just making a choice that happens to involve uh, an attempt at punching someone. Yeah, or something like damaging like that. your morale or something. Like right. I, like at one point I had like made myself sad, so I took damage because I had made myself sad because I had, like I was being too self-deprecating. I think. So there's there's little things like that that are really great. Um, but yeah, so it's like you have a health meter and you have, I think it's called the morale meter. I don't know. There's like two different health meters, basically. And if they drop to zero, you then can you die, but which is weird. But there's no like violent. I mean, there's like, yeah, there's like instances of like punching someone or something. But there's no like, okay, I'm going to go equip my gun and go into this battle. Whereas like the thing with Divinity is it's like, the it's like a big systems heavy combat system like everything can kind of yeah. interact with one another so that definitely and, lends itself more to like an rpg setting of okay like we need to go through this dungeon how are we going to do it are we going to like spill whatever and light it on fire you know yeah that sort of and, thing and, and i think the character side like the character and story parts of divinity are are equally deep in the amount of choices that you can uh bring forward and really roleplay your characters, but the combat being it's very hardcore is a high is a high barrier for many people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think really with uh, Disco Elysium, one of the things that people should bring forward is like don't be afraid to try like our cutout systems. Like not having a combat system isn't necessarily a negative. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you build the game around it and and not being able to just say drop a point into um, I'm going to be a superstar cop <laughs> at really like changes how you make some of those decisions like yes you can add it but then you got to wait for it to really firm up and become a part of your character and that that's an interesting idea so i mean what i want from disco elysium is is for developers to be like like do we really need like a combat system do we really need the dialogue system to to be the bioware standard uh how much of an overworld do we need um and i feel like developers rarely play around with rpgs like that with the exception of uh, Kawazu-san, who does the Saga games, which mm-hmm. I think sometimes are a little bit too esoteric. Well, it's something that goes all the way back to Ultima 4, right? Where Richard Garriott was kind of going, well, I mean, all the bad guys are dead, and people have been complaining about how violent these games are. I mean, what if I make this game about choices that you make, and mm-hmm. regaining all the virtues, and not being a jerk, and... Uh, and that becomes a unique sort of role-playing experience. I feel like Disco Elysium kind of is very much in that tradition, uh, but at the same time, we get stuck into this headspace of, well, of course an RPG has to have combat. We lean super hard into the dungeon-crawling roots that go all the way back to classic D&D, so it's natural to kind of stuck in this binary element of RPG design, but I completely agree with Mike, when he says that maybe next gen, we start to see 
developers finding ways to do lots of really meaningful role playing and incorporating tons of interesting systems into the dialogue without actually having traditional combat. And that makes me really excited, actually. Yeah, like one of the barriers for me for like getting into like Fallout or even like Elder Scrolls, even though I've, I've played a lot of Elder Scrolls, is that I don't like the combat in those games, like just plain and simple. Like I just like I like imagine like what if Fallout New Vegas had no combat? Like I could probably play that game and like it, you know. Like I, I really don't like the combat in most open world RPGs. The combat is by far the weakest part of Fallout yeah, New Vegas. Ex- yeah, exactly. So it's like imagine like a AAA developer making like this gigantic, super like, I guess this would be a super buzzwordy thing, but like immersive type world, you know, with their budget. But what if they just skip combat? What if just like there's no gun? You're not shooting people. You're just, you know, you're role playing. Maybe you're building up like a base or something or like a town or I guess it's kind of Sikudin-esque. But, uh, kind of simulation-esque or <laughs> something yeah. you've got Stardew Valley. Yeah, but like I, I feel like there's space to play around with in RPGs where like as we see in Disco Elysium and even like to an extent in Larian um, Studios games where it's you, you don't have to just do like running around and shooting at monsters in between all the actual stuff that people like to do in your RPGs. Like there's more that can be played with. So stretching the meaning of a role-playing game, uh, having different professions, finding ways to incorporate role-playing mechanics into a game that could be one part, I don't know, Disco Elysium and one part job simulator, (laughs) where you're in a cubicle and you're getting through all your work and you're interacting with your coworkers and you're building up your stats, but there's no combat, quote-unquote. Yeah, see, like right there, an RPG based in office. Bam, that's an interesting idea. Like mm-hmm. navigating, maybe working your way up the totem pole over like the course of multiple days or weeks or whatever. Like that's a cool, and like only like one of my favorite ideas probably of the not this generation that's passed, but the past one was Alpha Protocol, which was an I, like I have been dying for somebody, anybody <laughs> to do an espionage RPG, like. You don't even need combat. In fact, you can, if you do a espionage RPG right, maybe there shouldn't be any combat at all because uh, you're not a very good spy if you're always doing the <laughs> James Bond firefight thing. Um, but so yeah, a like, real spy RPG where right. you're making relationships and you're slowly but surely building this crazy identity, and you could even make it something along the lines of. Maybe the identity starts to overtake your character and they find themselves sympathizing with the people that they're supposed to be spying on. And maybe there's a crucial decision where you decide whether or not to betray your organization and things like that. And you're coming up with really devious ways to perpetrate your spycraft. You can do the Americans, but without the action and uh, with a lot more spycraft. Right. And, and see, right, right there, you bring that pitch to to the 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 games press and influencers i think that goes a lot further than uh, here's a spyish rpg here's a turn-based combat system and you can make bioware style choices here here and here like i don't i don't think that that's as interesting or or sellable as like what you just described there 
I think that there's still a huge appetite for traditional RPGs, though. Yeah. Um, as evidenced by the fact that Larian has managed to appear, and they've made a lot of hay just on using turn-based combat. They are defiantly an old-school turn-based combat studio, and I super applaud them for that. But they also play around with turn-based combat systems and have a lot of fun with that aspect. I wouldn't mind seeing developers continue to make games in the traditional RPG mold, but have way more reactive worlds, way more reactive systems. Not having everything being scripted, but being able to incorporate AI in some way, maybe even... (laughs) This may be this might get me into trouble because I might sound like I have no idea what I'm talking about. Is there some way that machine learning can be used to create truly reactive worlds that start to produce dialogue and characters and situations on the and quests on the fly in a truly interesting world? Is this a thing that we can see in like ten years? Wasn't what was the one? Ken Levine. Wasn't mm-hmm. he working on something like this? Like what he was describing when he said something like that. Uh, something near the idea of an immersive sim, but built in a world that can react to you a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think he actually pitched that at GDC like six years ago. Yeah, and then we haven't, like he's still at 2K doing something at his little studio that we have not heard of since then since he killed his other studio and lost a lot of people their jobs right uh-huh. yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't get me on that. <laughs> so, so yeah uh like maybe maybe something like that like I, I i think there's uh room out there to have a little bit more fun with it like go out there and do something interesting yeah, I'm almost imagining I'm almost imagining a situation where you you know how in Left 4 Dead you have kind of an unseen GM or AI person who's constantly sending in zombies depending on the situation and changing things up. I'm almost imagining an AI dungeon master who in real life you would have a person, a, a really good DM would see what the characters are doing and be able to craft situations on the fly and potentially send the story in really interesting directions. If we could have an AI version of that, it could in a way be really old school, but at the same time be kind of revolutionary for how we understand and experience RPGs. Yeah. And and I mean, developers will need to start thinking of this <clears throat> because, uh, Creating graphic assets is getting way more expensive, and Mm. what you're getting out of it is probably not as beneficial. That's interesting because Ubisoft claims that the actual cost of creating assets and things has been somewhat flat, especially heading into the next generation. Maybe, maybe I, I, I could see that, especially if they're still working for PC. But like pushing the graphics too far forward is no longer as useful because like even pondering talking about the, the the fact that the new technology in the ps5 and series x does not is not mirrored over in pcs so if you're making a multi-platform game you you can't really use all of those new features and then you add the switch into it 
which is such an important platform for a lot of indie developers. And I, and I think maybe the, the graphics race might slow down a bit to sort of like a, a like a mid-ground where we, we are in this. Uh, and maybe developers playing around with art styles a little bit more too, which might help. Like if you're aiming for a lower or medium spec, perhaps you can do some more interesting things with it. We've talked a lot about what we want to see from RPGs going into the next generation. We've talked about more reactive worlds and having jobs and settings that wouldn't necessarily be within your typical fantasy or space molds. We talked about doing away with uh, baseline concepts like combat systems. But what do we think RPGs will actually look like in the next gen? And this is where I'm going to be really cynical and I think and say that I think a lot of people are going to try and ape the Witcher next gen. And we're already seeing it, but I think it's going to be even more so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we we are already seeing that. Like, that's basically what new Assassin's Creed is. It's like they took heavy inspiration from The Witcher and it works for the most part. Like, I, I don't think Odyssey's main story was as good as Origins. Like, Origins is more compelling, like, top, top to bottom for me, but... 100% were influenced by The Witcher. And I like I feel like even in like Ghost of Tsushima you can see some witchery influence in the side quests in terms of like how they're plotted and how they have like multiple steps and everything. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and and like, I almost think that uh Tsushima side quests are, are probably like like real strong actually stories yeah. overall. Mm-hmm. Lady Masako. Oh, yes. Like that that like top to bottom from beginning like it started off a little one note and then as it as you kept going like yeah that was almost witcher level as a side quest to me um so i think she's just like good like a well-written character like i feel like we don't see many like women portrayed that way in games you know like she's like flawed she's grieving for her whole family she's on like a quest for revenge but then she like shows compassion in unexpected ways like I feel like that was like that that I'm not finished with the game. I'm still in act 2, but for me like so far it's been the highlight of the game, like just her journey and also like I think it's Ishikawa, the like samurai who's like yeah. yeah, like uh his like student like defected to like the Mongol side and there's like this whole drama with that and there's like a lot of restraint in that story because you like never see her until like pretty deep in the the quest line. Um you just kind of like hear like like you get like bits of the story farther along and then you kind of start doubting like Ishikawa's side like okay like is he telling the whole truth here like what happened what did he do that made her defect um I still haven't finished that quest line so I don't know the whole ending there but uh yeah like you definitely like we're already seeing The Witcher 3's influence in modern open world games in general because I mean The Witcher 3 kind of set a new standard for open world storytelling it showed that like it didn't have to all just be fetch quests and it didn't have to all just be you know, go to this place and kill this amount of people. Uh, and there can be more depth to that. But also, like, to... And the scale of the world and the beauty scale of Scale of the world and how it feels, like, bustling and alive. And, I mean, it also influenced it, too, detriment. Like, we are also seeing so many of the Witcher systems in, like, every game. Like, d- Detective Vision. I guess that was a Batman thing before. That was a Batman thing, Witcher. Yeah. But... I mean, Witcher did it also in that and Tsushima in that space <laughs> and Tsushima. Yeah, it's exactly. But it's like Detective Vision is in every open world game. Like Assassin's Creed has it. Like it's everywhere, and that's 
something I, I would like to see ditched in next gen. But Yeah, we're um, doing a whole article about this, actually. Yes, we are. But <laughs> um, I don't think it's going to go away, but I would like to see it go away. Well, I mean, if you don't mind me ranting briefly, I, it's such a cliche, easy shortcut of like having the character go, oh, blood, there's a fight here. And then <laughs> yeah. walking... I'm going to follow these the trail footprints. Of footsteps yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah. It's so perfunctory. There's no real interaction to it. Like, at least in Witcher, it kind of makes sense because he's like, he has cat-like powers, you know? Like, he can sense stuff. But, like, in every other game, it's just like, this person has really good hearing and can just, yeah, I'm going to follow these footsteps because I see them walking away from the site. So I'm going to go jog along with them for, <laughs> like, five minutes. It's always footsteps. It's always footsteps. It's just like, okay, and then you find them, and then you do a battle or something, or talk to them. And Yeah, because the, the, the detective vision is like an outlier of the fidelity problem, which is as, as game worlds get bigger and more detailed, it's hard to see the actual gamey bits, so mm. developers have to put in a mode that lets you see the gamey bits. That's fair. But um, also, they should just but, stop it because it's stupid. Just let but me, you can fix that with a different art do, style. Just let me do pixel hunting, like an old point-and-click adventure, you know? <laughs> just like, I, I just want to hit see, X-Blob. See, but that's the problem. <laughs> I'm kidding. I was actual, totally kidding. <laughs> how about actual logic problems rather than yeah. just solving the problems for the player? Yeah, like uh, Oberdin-like logic mm-hmm. puzzles would be cool. But, yeah, I mean... Like I like a ju- I really like Judgment, which is a detective game um, from the Yakuza developers. Uh, but like the detective stuff in that game is just so scripted and so lame in general. Like it's just not. It's barely a thing. Um, and that it's was like one people of my don't want to think. They don't yeah. want to actually put any thought into the stupid. problem that they have to solve. That's stupid. I want to think. Maybe maybe we're the weird ones. We're the only people want to think when we play games. <laughs> well, yeah, it's, it's 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 dependent on that balance. Like uh, Sherlock, Crimes and Punishment is actually pr- pretty solid detective game, but that's because it's just a detective game. Mm-hmm. Like one of the things in our list of of missions that we would prefer not to have are trailing missions, which actually would make a lot of sense in a detective game like observation while not being seen which all of that comes back from assassin's creed the first one which was more of a investigative experience but very repetitive so like yeah that that that's part of the problem like at the end of the day they want to add some of these other systems but they also still want to be the open world hacky slash shoot shoot game. See, that's why I want them to get rid of skill trees as well, because it's not like these skill trees add anything to a AAA game like Tsushima or Horizon Zero Dawn or God of War. It's it's an illusion of choice, but there is no real choice. You're not building interesting characters out of this. And it's all one very boring, giant waste of time. That's fair. I mean, I would argue that Tsushima's uh skill tree like actually demonstrably like change well, like end up I, not... unlocking everything eventually yeah i mean uh, but i do feel like it it feels considerable but i do think the stance system sucks in that game like it's mm-hmm. it doesn't add anything fresh to the combat it's just like 
oh, I'm facing a shield guy, so I gotta change my st stance, but it's like you, it's only like an animation difference. Like you're holding your sword at a different place and you're doing different moves and it's more effective, but you're not hitting any different buttons there. Uh, and that's like a, that's been a frustrating thing is like, as I get deeper in the game, like the combat is very repetitive. The ghost, ghost stance does not change it up that much. So, um, yeah, I guess I, I think I, I would actually agree that maybe skill trees don't need to be in every game necessarily. So I'm curious, we've already kind of mentioned that a lot of games are going to be trying to ape the Witcher and that kind of thing. Are there other, any anything else that you fully expect oh. to see in the next generation of RPGs? That's a big question. I mean, I feel like honestly, we're just going to, for at least these first few years, we're just going to keep seeing the same shit we've always seen. Like, I don't think mm -hmm. I, like, I can see the likes of like what Larian Studios has been doing and what uh, Studio Zom, I think, is the Disco Elysium developers. Like, I, I feel like those games are like, like developers love those games because they're very systems heavy. They're very like innovative in that respect. But I don't see a lot of AAA developers maybe looking to those and being, I mean, I guess Larian is kind of AAA now, but you know, I don't see a lot of console RPG focused uh, developers looking to like what innovators in the space are doing and being like i want to do that like i would be stoked if they were but i feel like they more look at what the market wants you know and look at how well ghost of tsushima has been selling and that game's like not like it has like a lot of good quality of life improvements and it's it's a good time generally and it has solid storytelling in the side stories but it's also like very much a checklisty open world game uh, and like I guess as we're saying with like Assassin's Creed Valhalla this this fall, like that nothing in that game seems to be piquing my interest. Maybe because I'm not interested in the setting, but it's also I've played both Odyssey and Origins, so there's a sense of like I've played this before. Uh, so I don't I don't see RPGs really innovating for at least a few more years. Like maybe mid generation will start seeing really interesting stuff, but. Uh, I mean, it's like we still have barely seen Breath of the Wild's influence on like open world and RPG games. So, I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the generation, games like I, I think like Dragon Age Inquisition was the, one of the early biggies, right? Mm -hmm. BioWare was still kind of a thing. And we weren't really anticipating the rise of companies like CD Projekt and Larian. So I fully expect to be surprised by yeah. emerging powers in the RPG space, as it were. I'm curious to see, like, what Obsidian does now that they're owned by Microsoft mm. and have a budget, you know? Like, Outer Worlds Playground games. Yeah, Playground, or, yeah, Playground Fable, too. I mean, I'm not a big, like, Fable, like, I'm not- I'm, I'm not, not either, but I think Playground <laughs> is an amazing developer. Oh, yeah, like, they've shown that they're, they do incredible open yep. worlds with the Forza Horizon series, so I'm, I'm really curious to see what they do with that. But, yeah, I don't see- I, I guess maybe I'm yeah maybe I do sound cynical too like I just don't see in like big innovations or big like new things happening with RPGs for a while I feel like mid generation kind of like how Witcher three kind of surprised everyone like oh wow this PC only developer made this incredible open world RPG like fancy that and now they're like one of the biggest developers in the world um, so I, I intend to be surprised by probably something along those lines uh in this generation like i feel like every generation has a few surprises um and breath of the wild on its own was surprising like i don't i wouldn't classify that as an rpg but 
Um, I would also want to be surprised if RPGs found themselves influenced by Breath of the Wild, like how it structured its open world and how it structured structured like adventuring in general. Um, yeah, that's a very long answer, and I don't think it quite answered your question. But um, <laughs> I guess like I, I I'm sure we'll be surprised by something, but not anywhere near launch of these consoles. I'm surprised neither of you brought up the the elephant in the room, Destiny likes. The oh, triple right. Destiny doesn't count. Um, I say that it counts. It's an MMO. It's not an RPG. But here's the thing. No, it's not. Uh, Marvel's Avengers is indeed a Destiny like. It has a single player uh, RPG component with levels and gear and all of that, while also having a repeatable co op online combat system. The part that you're missing is Destiny likes. That's the uh the other road that we're already seeing it with a game like outriders which looks so criminally boring like do you think that like dragon age 4 you you've played inquisition inquisition had a multiplayer mode where four people yeah i don't remember this (laughs) oh it was co-op it was actually kind of cool yeah i have no memory of this (laughs) it was a somewhat decent uh multiplayer four-player co-op mode where you could get together four people and go in and attack some monsters and other stuff together and i don't think for all that dragon age 4 uh will probably try to go back to like probably dragon age one style uh, i think they'll probably still have some sort of online uh co-op multiplayer mode repeatable as sort of an in-game thing that they can add on to over time all right we have to wrap up but i think that to end on a positive note i actually am kind of i certainly i expect developers to be conservative to go for the witcher likes for the destiny likes that kind of thing for the games that work. But I think that there are some really interesting innovations coming into gaming pretty soon. One of them is certainly the rise of VR and AR. And I think that there are a lot of really interesting opportunities to be had in the RPG space um, in that field. I think that the continued advancement of AI could really mean a lot of really interesting things for RPGs. And then just the fact that the sheer technology is going to result in the ability to create even bigger, more vivid open worlds with like a minimum of loading, uh, like could create a lot of freedom and kind of fantasy worlds that we've never really experienced. And it feels like the love and excitement for RPGs as a genre is at an all-time high at this point. RPGs sell well, they get a lot of excitement, they play well in an era where people want a lot of content for their buck, capital C content. And so. Yakuza is an RPG now. Whoa. Hell yeah. It's yeah, right? Everything's an RPG because RPGs are the best genre. Okay, guys, thanks for coming on the show, and let's continue on to the track of the week. Okay, thanks to Mike and Katie for coming on the show and making sure that I don't have to talk to myself for the entire episode. All right, let's continue on to the track of the week. Every single week, we go through and we pick a classic track from an RPG that we love because music is so important to the understanding the RPG experience. It really creates a lot of emotions and a lot of feelings and helps drive home 
the sense of being involved in the world. This week, Nadia is not on the show, so I get to choose whatever the heck I want. So see if recognize this song. Yeah, of course I had to pick a Super Robot Wars song. Yes, this week's track of the week is Blue Blue Sky from Super Robot Wars Original Generation. It is the main theme of Kruisha, known for taking long baths, and the main heroine of Super Robot Wars Original Generation characters. She is not from any particular giant robot anime. She was created specifically for the series. She was introduced in Super Robot Wars Alpha, where she was one of the generic protagonists. But eventually canonically had a name. I think that Blue Blue Sky is pretty indicative of a lot of the music that you will find in a Super Robot Wars game and it almost has a synthy PS1 quality to it or sorry TurboGrafx-16 quality to it that I really enjoy. It's always very catchy, it's very high tempo, very energetic the kind of music that you want to listen to whenever you go into battle which is when this music plays and it is evocative of old school anime in a lot of ways specifically the mecha genre which is not surprising because super robot wars original generation was composed by mikiyaki watanabe who was still churning out tracks at 90 as of 2016 He was born in 1925 and survived World War II. According to the Anime News Network, he said uh, when he was getting ready to compose music for what would otherwise be known as a kid's show, I kept in mind that I would not compose childish music even if the target of the dramas was children. That's why people in their 40s and 50s still listen to my songs and sing them at karaoke. I am really pleased. Uh, Watanabe was involved in the creation of a lot of classic mecha anthems. He was involved in the composition of, say, Get a Robo. And he also worked on more recent projects like A Boy and His Beast. If you listen to a theme of Z, which mixes a lot of brass with synth, you get an idea of his style and how that was incorporated into Super Robot Wars. Also involved in the music for Super Robot Wars is Jam Project, musical group that's heavily associated with anime i may get to them another time i don't know i i've played super robot wars music a time or two on the show it is quite simple it is never that complex but i think that high energy high energy music that is very catchy and a lot of fun can just put you in a particular mood in a particular mood to see robots punching one another and using super abilities on each other Okay, that is the track of the week. We will have another track, as always, next week when we have Nadia back on the show. Let's pick up the mailbag. This week's mail is from Skyward Shadow 
and they say cats these games play it safe comments really helped me understand where she's coming from with her long-standing grumbling enjoyable grumbling about the state of the industry i too feel that we need innovation but i think there's room for a third option not mentioned when i play through a game system and or story that i adore i want more but i also want it to be better i recognize that many of my old favorite games had amateur aspects and i don't want the exact same thing warts and all I want the next game to provide a more polished and improved experience. The difference between Suikoden 1 and 2 exemplify this. So Suikoden 3 had taken everything perfect from 2, but then say innovated on the weapon system allowing you to further customize each character and say it continued to mature the storytelling further. Think of the incredible classic it would be, instead of existing as a controversial entry. We need small innovations on the best games and systems as long as they are genuine and not gimmicky or filler grinds. At the same time, we need truly innovative new products to push the boundaries and explore what's possible. I've been thinking a lot about that, especially when it comes to talking about a game like Ghost of Tsushima and whether it's always fair to drag a game for not being fresh or interesting or new. And I think that when it comes to innovation, it's not just being able to have completely new ideas that come out of left field and surprise me. I think it's more just not being a cliche, doing kind of zigging when not zagging, especially when it comes to the storytelling. People expect one thing and then you're like, okay, yeah, like I've seen this a million times before. You're doing it again. Okay, fine, whatever. If it's executed really well, that can be one thing. But I think you're putting yourself in a little bit of a hole when you traffic in well-worn storytelling tropes in particular or well-worn gameplay tropes. It helps to have a little bit of a twist, helps to have a little bit of a hook. And a lot of games, uh, I don't know, they're kind of lacking of a, in imagination in that department. They just crib a lot of different elements that kind of work, and then they put them into one big bucket. And that bucket we get is Ghost of Tsushima, a beautiful but deeply cliched game. But, you know, people seem to enjoy it. So who am I to judge, right? Okay, continuing on. Brian Clark says, I absolutely loved Shin Megami Tensei 4. But yeah, Tokyo can be pretty confusing, mostly because nothing is labeled. Apparently they fixed that in the sequel, Shin Megami Tensei 4 Apocalypse, but I've yet to play it. When I was reviewing SMT4, I got so lost in Tokyo. And I lived in Tokyo. I theoretically knew where Ueno was. I could not find Ueno for the life of me in Shin Megami Tensei 4, which was very, very stressful because I was reviewing it. There were no guides. There was nothing that I could look up. I was eventually able to get help from the PR folks to be able to find where I was supposed to go. Uh, see also Dark Souls, a game that, by the way, I don't recommend reviewing without any help from guides and just trying to figure things out while under a deadline. That is stressful as all get out. But uh, yeah, I hope that they fixed it in SMT4 Apocalypse. That is not a game that I played either, but it tends to be fairly well regarded among RPG purists. So perhaps the plug god recommends it. And finally, Drinking with Skeletons says, My biggest concern about the Nocturne remaster is all the quality of life improvements they've added to the series over time. I tried to revisit Nocturne after a loving SMT4, but the glacial pace of combat, uncompromising difficulty, and the general system regressions made it a short trip. Yeah, that's part of the reason that Nocturne did not make it 
into our top 25 RPGs, despite the fact that it has a large and very loyal fan base, it is kind of a bear to play. Atlas doesn't generally skimp on re-releases, but I hope they aren't so married to Nocturne's reputation as a hardcore classic that they don't make it more accessible and generally fun to play. I would not be surprised if they went and enhanced Nocturne systems, added a bunch of quality of life improvements, not the least because they're already enhancing the graphics. This is not a straight port. So I could see plenty of development time being given to making Nocturne maybe a game that's more enjoyable to play and perhaps gets people excited to play SMT5, which is another game that's coming along. Then again, maybe Atlas is just like, what, SMT? It's the hardcore series. This is a hardcore series for hardcore fans. If you want something a little more accessible, play Persona. Otherwise, eh, deal with it. (laughs) That is all of our questions for the week, and I think that it is time to wrap up. Axe of Blogout is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Thanks to Mike and Katie for coming on the show and talking about what we want to see in next-gen RPGs. It was a very enjoyable conversation. And we will have Nadia back next week to continue on with the exploration of the RPG genre. We're going to continue our console RPG quest. Next week is the Nintendo DS, one of the most important consoles in RPG history certainly in terms of handhelds. It's weird. I sort of feel like we don't talk about the DS as much as we should, but it is one of the top-selling handheld consoles of all time, and there are some real classics on that thing. So we're going to have a really in-depth conversation next week. But until then, for Katie and Mike and myself, thanks for listening, and happy adventuring. (laughs) 